refining their seats, that'd be great. All right. Um, please be seated. If you have Bibles with you, I would recommend pulling them out and opening them. Specifically opening them, not to a random page, but to the book of Exodus. Uh, we are continuing our series in Exodus, uh, chapter 17. We are in verses 1 through 7. And uh, for those of you who have been here for this series so far, the, uh, the Israelites are now in the wilderness. And um, there's a theme repeating. You know, like uh, those of you guys who, who like classical music, you know what a theme is. It's that main melody that comes in. And it keeps coming back, you know. And so we're going we're gonna to read the text and see if you can pick out what the theme is from the past few weeks. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said... Every time we come across the grumbling, I do my grandmother's voice. I said last week she was 5'10". That grossly misrepresents. She was a 4'10", Italian lady from Queens. Uh, Give us water to drink. (laughs) She was worried about everything always. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You will strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Pray with me. Lord, I I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that not only would it make sense to us, but that we would receive encouragement and conviction from it, that we would gain a clearer picture of who you are, and that it would carry us uh, when we're not here listening to your word, that it would dwell within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Back uh, um, several years ago, uh, beginning in 2004 in in Nashville, Sharon and I, um, we were part of, just as members, part of planting a church. One of the reasons I was interested in church planting, actually, uh, because it was a great experience. And and, uh, there was one guy who was around uh, the church plant named Andrew. Now, Andrew uh, was just getting kind of back on his feet. He was in a halfway house after spending years and years uh, on the street in addiction. And, uh, but he was, you know, part of the community. And, and so when it was time for him to get out of the halfway house and out of the addiction program, like he managed to get himself uh, a, a little house, like a, a decent little place. And he was holding down a job. And, and so 
you know, kind of he needed stuff. He needed a bed, he needed a, a fridge and a microwave and the rest of it. And so, like, just we, we kind of talked among ourselves and said, hey, does anybody have this stuff? Like, it wasn't a very wealthy church or anything like that where you'd, like, write a check for such things. But we, we kind of collected up everything that, that we could, you know, bedding and all that stuff. And, and, and we came over and, and we, we, we helped him get set up. And he was like, yes, like, he was finally arriving, you know, like, like he was off the street, he was in a house, he was in a community that was taking care of him, and then the dude fell off the face of the earth, just ghosted the whole community. We didn't know what happened. And so uh, we, we all kind of lived pretty close to each other, and, um, and we were kind of all aware of like, hey, whatever happened to Andrew, like, like we, we, need, we can't just let him, you know, be by himself. And so we'd go knock on his house, knock on his door, text him. He wouldn't respond. And then one day I was with another guy and, and we knocked on his, on his door as we were going by and, and he, he did answer. And we were like, Hey, Andrew, how you doing, man? We, we haven't seen you in a couple months and are you okay? And you know, he just had the door open like this much and he looked, he looked pretty ashamed of himself. To answer our question of how he was doing, he, he let the door open and the inside of his house was empty. And he explained to us that, that as soon as he had gotten set up, he started pawning off all the stuff the church had given him to, to and he had, a, he had a relapse. And he assumed that because he had failed, First of all, he was no longer welcome among us. And second of all, that God had given him a second chance and he had blown it really hard. Like God had been good to him, had, had brought this community around him and, and he was just down a really dark hole. He thought that his failure was fatal. That there was no coming back from this failure, that the community didn't want him, that God didn't want him, because he had blown it, right? There were conditions to the relationship. He had broken those conditions, and now it's done. For so many of us, I, I'm not exactly sure where we got this message, but our understanding of the Christian faith, our understanding of God is that you need to be kind of nearly perfect, and if you have a serious failure, maybe you have a little funny failure. Oh, I watch too much TV or whatever, you know. But a real failure, a failure like Andrew had, something like that, it's over. Right? Like, like maybe you get another chance, but that's it. And if, if you blow your second chance, it, it, it's done. Right? You can no longer really say that you're, you're walking in the light of the gospel or the victory or the triumph of whatever because you blew it. You failed. And especially, it's hard when you're in that place where you are in the grips of a failure. Maybe you didn't even come to church this morning and you're watching online and saying to yourself, I don't belong there. Right? That's for people who had a good moral performance this week. Not for failures like me. And you think that, you know, maybe there's a chance. If I, could, if I could torment myself long enough, 
maybe God will lighten up and kind of take me back, right? Like if I redeem myself somehow, maybe I could prove to the community that I'm, I deserve, you know, a third chance. I've got some very bad news for you. You're a much bigger failure than you think. <laughs> Here's the thing. We, like, for a second here, I'm just going to talk about how much more of failures we are than we even realize. This is going to sound negative, but I promise it turns. We think, you know, just moral failures. You know, I look at something I shouldn't on the internet, or I get drunk, or I lose my temper, or whatever. Moral failures, right? But that's not the only kind of failure there is that we're guilty of. Think of this. Do any of us succeed in giving God the glory he deserves? Any of us? Like our most heartfelt worship, what is it? It's failure. Like that doesn't come close. Whatever we do, it doesn't come close to giving it up to God the way that God deserves, right? Like what Christ has done on the cross. Has anyone ever like truly come close to giving? Like we fail at that, don't we? Guys, that's, that's a big failure, right? Like, we don't fail to give it up for Jokic if he has, you know, 24 and 15 and 10, which is, he does all the time. We're like, oh, Jokic! You guys don't know what that is. Don't worry about it. Sports play is what I just said. <laughs> Do you fail to trust God? You guys know it's a sin to not trust God? To think that God won't come through. You guys realize that? I, I fail to trust God. You ever fail to forgive somebody? You know, hold a grudge or pretend like you forgive somebody and then you remember what they did and you're like, oh, kill them. That's also a sin. We're all blowing through second, third, fourth, fifth. I might be on chance 10 million right now, okay? Now, how do we deal with the fact that you and me are all failures? Well, one way that I prefer is to beat myself up, to sort of mentally and emotionally flagellate myself. That's the thing and not farting. Okay, great. I said the right thing. Like, if you were to take my internal monologue of when I'm realizing my failure, like, Ice Cube could just use it as a diss rhyme for somebody, and it would be a hit. And it's really hard for me to imagine, when I become aware of my failure, that Jesus would still want me. That I'm still, like, a good investment for God, so to speak. And some of you guys, I know some of you guys, are kind of perfectionistic. And failure is not acceptable for you. And you're hating the sermon so far. (laughs) Because in the economy in which you were raised, whether it's your family or your school or whatever torture chamber you have going on inside, you've got this standard that you've got to live up to. And if it becomes apparent to you that there's daylight between your performance and that standard, you're going to have a hard time living with yourself. 
What does the Bible say about how God regards our failure? How does God respond to his people when they fail? Well, we just read in Exodus 17, 1 through 4, or 1 through 7 rather, about a pretty big failure. What was the failure? Let's look again. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Okay, we got a problem. We got over a million people with no water to drink. Okay, that's a problem. But let's remember what they've just seen. They just saw the Exodus, all of those miracles God performed to deliver them out of the land of Egypt. That's a powerful God who has authority over nature, heaven and earth, life and death, everything else, right? Okay. And then they, they, after they get out, they are at the Red Sea, and here comes Pharaoh and the chariots and the army. What do they do? They say, oh, God just brought us out to the wilderness for us to be killed by chariots. Right? They just saw the Exodus, guys, and they lose it. Problem, don't trust God, lose it. That's a failure. Okay, and then the next one, remember what it was last week? We don't have any food. Right, sure, that's great. You delivered us from the chariots. You delivered us from Egypt. But now where's the food, God? And what does God do? He provides manna for them and quail at night as like an extra thing. <laughs> day in, day out. This is what they're seeing. They ate manna this morning. So here's another problem. There's no water. Well, you might think if you were walking around eating miracle bread every day, you might be like, there's no water. This is a problem. But you know, God's got us before. Clearly he's in control of things. Clearly he's trustworthy. I'm sure there's a, hey Moses, do you know what, what we're going to do for water? We assume God's got this under control. That's one response. How do they respond? The people quarreled with Moses. Guys, this isn't grumbling. This is an escalation from the last two things. This is quarreling. Moses even says, these people are ready to stone me. That is, kill me by throwing rocks at my face until I'm dead. It's coming to that. Okay? When we see them saying, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And even their, their last response, uh, where, where it says in verse 7, is the Lord even among us or not? They're saying, is God even here? Remember, they're seeing like the, the fire pillar and the cloud pillar and the manna, and they saw the Red Sea, and they're saying, is God even here? Guys, this isn't, this isn't miss the game winning shot failure, right? This is burn down your own house failure, okay? It's a failure of a different kind. It's like a... It's not, it's not an oopsie. It's like, a, I tried but didn't get there. This is a hard-hearted rejection of God. Now, surely, we, since we're in the Old Testament, we all know how much God smites people in the Old Testament, right? A lot of smiting going on reportedly in the Old Testament. And so we're going to see God respond how? Wrath, smiting. How, what does he do? <clears throat> 
Or is he going to abandon him? I might. If I was God at that point, I'd be like, you know, the Elamites are looking mighty good compared to you lot. What does God do instead? Look with me again at verse 6, or or verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. It's not smiting, is he? We'll get to what all that means, but his response is not wrath, is it? This is a pattern that we're going to see. Remember, God's relationship with his people was just starting here. This wilderness experience is their first experience with him. And what we're going to see throughout the Old Testament, the pattern is not they step a toe out of line and God smites. That's not what happens. Instead, what we're going to see is his people are radically unfaithful. They fail again and again and again, and he keeps on pursuing them. He stays with them. God never stops pursuing his people, even when they fail. Um, one of my favorite books to read my kids is The Runaway Bunny. Does anybody know The Runaway Bunny? Parents know The Runaway Bunny? Okay, for those of you who don't know The Runaway Bunny, um, I, it's amazing. So basically, the story of The Runaway Bunny is there's a mother bunny who has a baby bunny. And her baby bunny says, I'm going to run away. No reason given, just runs away. She says, well, the thing is, is if you run away, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to come after you because you are my bunny. And so he says, well, if you run after me, I am going to climb to the highest mountain so you won't be able to, to follow me. She says, well, if you, become, if, you, if you become like a rock on a high mountain, I think it's what he says, well, I'm going to become a mountaineer. I'm going to climb up to where you are because you're my little bunny. And it goes on and on like that, right? Like, like, hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to join the circus. Well, if you join the circus, I'm going to become a trapeze artist and I'm going to come out, right? The, the mother is relentless in pursuing him, even as he runs away. Why? Because he is her little bunny. That children's story is a better picture of the gospel than any I know. As far as I know, the the writer is not a Christian, but this speaks a deep truth about the story of the Bible. it's, It's not that God is sitting there saying, find me, guys, prove you're worthy. That's not what we see in the Bible. Instead, what we see is that human beings run away from God. Human beings reject God. Human beings turn away from God, and God relentlessly chases after all the way to becoming human himself and going to a cross to die for our sin. God never stops pursuing his people. And and the thing is, this is hard for us ever to really latch on to. You know why? You're accustomed that when your problems are too big, when you're too difficult, people run away from you. That you need to keep your problems at a acceptable level or you're a hard hang or you're needy, right? The good news of the gospel and, and, and the community that carries the gospel is that God never stops pursuing us. We are not too much trouble for him. 
you are not too much trouble for this community. If you ask an elk if being pursued is a good thing in and of itself, it would probably tell you no. So we don't just see God pursue. We also see that God forgives. Where do we see God's forgiveness here, guys? Look with me at verses five and six again. It says, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Okay, anyone seeing forgiveness yet? No, probably not. All right, this is gonna be fun. You're gonna love this. So what does he do? He says, get the elders. Who are the elders? They're the representatives of the people. Who's Moses? Moses is the mediator of the covenant. That means he goes to God on behalf of the people and he goes to the people on behalf of God. He's the connection point. When he's facing the people, he's God. Not literally, but he's God's representative. And when he faces God, he's the people's representative. That making sense? Okay, grab the representatives of the people. Go to a rock. Take with you the staff. Which staff? It specifies the staff with which you struck the Nile. What happened when you struck the Nile? Water became blood. In fact, throughout the miracles that God does in Egypt, the staff is usually involved and it indicates the wrath of God falling. Yes? A lot of wrath from that staff. The staff of wrath, I have now called it. So take that rat staff. That's even better. I like that one better. The rat staff. Stand at the head of the people. When he faces towards God, who is he? He's the people, right? He's got the wrath in his hand. What does God say? This is really strange. I will stand on the rock. And what's he supposed to do with the staff? Hit him. What is this saying? It's saying... Cause my wrath to fall on me from the people. Why does that mean? Does that, does that make sense? Everybody see that? Right? Why does that mean that God is forgiving them? Well, here's the thing. In order for sin to be forgiven, the cost for it has to fall on somebody, doesn't it? Like, uh, uh, let's say Chris helped me move yesterday and he's like, hey, Matt, help me move. A bunch of you guys helped, actually. It was really great. Thank you. Uh, so Chris is like, hey, Matt, come help me move. And, and we've got his TV. I'm like, you know what, Chris? Heck with your TV. And I just take it super strong. I lift it over my head. And I just go, woo, tang, pow, right? <laughs> Smash his TV. I was like, that's what I think of your TV. And Chris goes, because Chris is a really nice guy. And he's like, you know what, man? I'm going to forgive you for doing that. What does that mean? It means he's not going to make me pay for a new TV. Right? That what, that's what, to, non-forgiveness means, Matt, you pay for a new TV right now. Okay, pay, pay for what you did. That's non-forgiveness. Forgiveness means you don't pay, Matt. Who's paying? Chris pays. Correct? Right? He has to take the loss of his TV. 
So if non-forgiveness means you, you pay for it, forgiveness means I accept the payment. God having his people hit him with his own wrath, like non-forgiveness would be his wrath falling on them. But what do we see instead? God says, have my wrath fall on me. He forgives his people. Now, I want to be clear about something. Some of you guys have been taught to imagine Jesus into the Old Testament where he's not supposed to be. That like you read a a passage in the Old Testament, it's like, you know, the Song of Solomon. Oh, God, love, like love, love, wife, sex, just like God loves the church. Right? Like kind of these imaginative leaps. So I, I caution you against imagining Jesus into the Old Testament. But this really is Jesus in the Old Testament. All right? This one, and, and I want to I be clear about something. If we're going to be good Bible people, I wish I had a better word right there. Um, it, we're not seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. We're seeing the Old Testament in Jesus. I'll tell you what I mean. This is a theme. This is something we see God do again and again in the Old Testament. When he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, Renee actually preached on it. Go back, listen to it. It's good. When you cut a covenant, when you made a covenant, you had to kill something. Right? Like, like in this case, they split a cow in half. Okay? It's symbolic. If I break the covenant, what happens to this cow happens to me. Right? And, and in, in, in making that covenant, the two parties of the covenant, in this case it would have been Abraham and God, would walk between the pieces to signify this curse fall on me if I don't keep it. But what does God do in Genesis 17? He puts Abraham into a sleep and he walks through himself. He's saying, I'll take the curse. And then we have this text right here. And then we have a a text like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, where it says that the punishment, I'm paraphrasing, the punishment that should have fallen on us fell on him instead. This is preparing us for what Jesus did for us. That God's forgiveness does not come cheap, but it has been paid by God himself. When we fail, not only does God keep pursuing us, but he forgives us as well. And this isn't something he does begrudgingly. One of my favorite presidents was Abraham Lincoln. It's, you know, very popular, safe choice. (laughs) One story I loved, part of Abraham uh, Lincoln's responsibilities was military tribunals, right? As, As president... If, if somebody, especially during the Civil War, were to run away from their post, right? You, you, that's a, there's a term for that, which I'm forgetting right now. But that is a, that is, what is it? Desertion, thank you. Deserting your post, that, that, you could be executed for that. And Abraham Lincoln would have to oversee these trials. He would have to judge them. And so soldier after soldier gets brought up, Right? And there was one day, he's, he had like a 10-hour day, ten, ten day of this. And every soldier that was brought in for desertion, he quitted them. 
In one case, I think he actually made a joke. He said, this guy's afraid of gunfire. You're going you're gonna to execute him with gunfire? He's terrified of that. No. Let him go. And the funny thing is his, his, his aide said, I was walking out of that day. I felt like I had, you know, he was completely drained. And he looked up at Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln smiling ear to ear with a spring in his step. And he explained, I just love, I just love forgiving. <laughs> it was just in his character. He delighted in forgiving. We think that God is going to tire of forgiving us. Right, that we kind of run out of chances. But it is in God's nature not only to be just, but also to forgive his people. We think we need to be perfect or close to it. That we have a finite number of chances to get it right. And then we better get our act together. Or we, need to, we need to not show our face at church. We need to not go to prayer because God doesn't want to see it. The opposite is true. When you fail which is all the time. God not only pursues you, but forgives you. Back, um, back when I was in the eighth grade, I was a uh, class A teenage dirtbag. Like I was, like the song Teenage Dirtbag could have been written about me. Let's put it this way. Once Ozzy Osbourne signed my Ozzy Osbourne patch on my denim jacket. Does that work? Does that communicate enough what I was like at 13 years old? Straight F's in school, including P.E. That takes effort. All right? I was vandalizing, burning things down, fighting everything in sight. Teenage dirtbag. But I had one teacher, my P.E. teacher, Mr. Howitt, who... You know, I think every teenage dirtbag has that one teacher that's trying to reach them somehow. Mr. Howitt was mine, and, and Mr. Howitt was uh, into music, right, which is the only thing I really cared about at the time. And so me and my little dirtbag friends, we would go and talk music with Mr. Howitt, and, and like, he had a guitar, he would play some guitar, he even, he loaned me, like, a blues record. It was cool. It was like our, our solace at school. And... Um, I forget exactly what happened, but I got accused of or caught smoking at school. And Mr. Howitt had asked me about it. And, you know, he was a teacher. I wasn't going to admit it. <laughs> so I was like, no, 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 not me. It couldn't be me. Don't smoke. I did. Um, and then uh, I was ditching school one day. Yeah. And smoking with my friends walking along, and apparently Mr. Howitt, like, drove past, saw us. And uh, I didn't know he had seen, but the next time I went to his office with my friends, uh, we walked in, he took one look at me, I forget what he had in his hand, I think it was a pen, he said, Morjinsky! And he threw the pen. I treated you like a brother, I saw you smoking, you lied to me, da-da-da-da-da, get out of here! Right? Literally the last time I ever spoke to him. And it was like, you know, you failed me. It's done. Relationship is over. I screwed up. That was it. Do you notice that in this story, God, how, do, how does he respond 
to their mistrust of him, to their, their failure. Like, you're not going to give us water. You hate us. You want to kill us. He still gives them water, doesn't he? <laughs> the water springs from the rock. He still provides. He, he continues to be their God, even when they fail so spectacularly. And by the way, do you think this is going to be the last instance of this in, the, in their time in the wilderness? No, it happens again and again. It actually, after the book of Exodus, it happens more in numbers. Like, you'll be reading it and be like, oh my gosh, these people. But when we fail, not only does God continue to pursue us, continue to forgive us, but he never stops being our God. Even when in the Old Testament, God sends his people into exile, there's a little passage in the book of Hosea where God is saying, I, you know, it's done. I divorced thee. He also says, I can't give you up, right? Like even when things look like they're over, God continues to be their God. Even when we don't trust him, even when they didn't trust him, God still provides for them. He still continues that relationship, even though they're not keeping up their side. He never stops being their God. He never stops being your God. When you are sure that you screwed up so bad that you're going to be told to get out, guess what? God continues to be your God. He continues to be your father. He continues to be your provider. May he allow us to face the consequences of some of our actions. Sure, he's a loving father. That's what loving fathers do. But he knows you. He knows what's going on with you. He knows what you're afraid of. He knows what you're concerned about. When you're sitting there saying, God's not going to come through, he's sitting there continuing to be your God, even when you're not trusting him to be that. We fear that our failure is fatal. We fear that we're going to screw up so bad that our relationship with God is severed, that we're not welcome in his presence, that we're not welcome among his people. But what we see when we look at the scriptures that God never stops pursuing, he never stops forgiving, and he never stops being our God. What are we to do? When we fail, come with confidence to Jesus. You don't need to come cringing. You don't need to come reluctantly. You don't need to come after a waiting period. You come with confidence, even in the midst of your failure. Maybe especially in the midst of your failure. Right when you're blowing it, go to Jesus. The struggle that you feel within in the midst of your failure, when you're saying, I, I can't go to prayer right now, I can't ask for forgiveness, I can't go to worship, I can't do any of those things. That's not coming from God, guys. Might be coming from you. Might be coming from the devil. The devil would love nothing better than to allow you to believe that your failure is fatal, that it's the end of your relationship with God, that God is not your God anymore, that he doesn't want you. Jesus tells a famous parable in Luke 15. 
Now, it's the parable of the lost sons. When I preach it, I talk about both sons. But for those of you who don't know it, the parable of what's called the prodigal son, it's, it's about a, a, a landowner, a father, who has two sons, both of whom reject him. Let's be clear about that. But the younger son asks for his inheritance before his father's dead, rejecting his father. And he goes off into a distant land for a Jew that was like anywhere else, the nations, and he lives a dissolute and wicked lifestyle, just partying it up, you know, the, the whole nine. Runs out of money, right? So he fails. And then he's hungry. And the only thing he can think to do is go back to his father and ask to be a hired laborer. That's like a day laborer. That's not even a slave. It's not even a household slave. Right? And, 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 and what happens as he's going back, he's rehearsing his speech. I'm so sorry. I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be a hired servant. What does the father do? Does anybody know this story? The father sees him a long way, sees him a long way off. He doesn't sit there with his arms folded. He runs to him. He embraces him. He says, my son who was dead is alive. He throws a big party for him. Jesus is teaching us that this is how God responds to our failure. It isn't with arms crossed. It isn't with distance. It isn't with rejection. It isn't with you better prove that you belong again. Redeem yourself. That's not who God is or what God does. Instead, in the midst of our failure, when we're afraid to come, he runs to us, throws his arms around us, and says, this is my child. Come to Christ with confidence when you fail. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are good. You pursue, forgive us, and continue to be our God even when we fail. God, I pray that as we become aware of the depth of our failure, that it would not crush us, but instead would make us look to your cross, would make us look to your love, and that we would come to you with confidence even when we fail. In Jesus' name, amen.